Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday, September the 19th. It's 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out in the mountains, and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday, September the 19th. It's Daniel Wertman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. Excited to kick off the show today. Hope all is well in your world. Coming up uh, in just a few minutes, we will be joined by Travis Clark of Top Drawer Soccer to uh, talk all things soccer, American soccer, etc. And uh, look forward to uh, connecting with him here in just a few minutes. Um, look, uh, there was some news that broke yesterday after the show. We were talking. Uh, uh, yesterday on the show with uh, Chris Kivlahan about uh, NISA and uh, the the NPSL announcement. And then later in the day, uh, some news broke that the Philadelphia Fury um, have withdrawn from the um, fall session of the of the the league. They're calling it the the NISA showcase. Um, and the league put out a, a release saying that they removed the fury, uh, from this fall, um, session and, and in part due or in large part due to the fact that one of the investors for the Philadelphia fury, um, have reversed course. Uh, in other words, uh, they pulled out uh, is what it looks like, and um, so you've got uh, you got one team in in the East. There were four, now there's three. Still four out in the West uh, for this Nisa showcase in the fall, and uh, more teams looking at it in the in the East. Uh, I mean, for the East adds to to the West, but for for the spring. Here, here's here's the reality of where we are when it comes to NISA. Um, Major League Soccer and the USL they're not they're not constructed exactly the same, but they operate under the same general philosophy, and that is centralized control. Now. In the case of Major League Soccer and in the case of the USL, if you are an independent club, let's say that you are Chattanooga or you are Detroit and you want to play in the USL or you want to play in Major League Soccer, to do that, you have to give up the control of your brand. You have to give up control of your club you can still operate your team but it's not it's not on the level of independence that you have now so when you look at uh where these two leagues are it's not necessarily a great place if you really believe in the global standard of club operations around the globe Clubs have much more independence in in day to day decision making in their brand, 
etc. It doesn't mean that there's not a coexistence or uh, a working together uh, with other clubs in a league. Totally, that happens. However, the, the independent clubs uh, in these leagues are able to do a lot of things on their own. They're not needing to ask the league, hey, do I have permission to go sign this player? That happens uh, in centralized control. They, they're able to go in and get sponsor deals for different aspects of their club that they're not necessarily having to worry about asking permission from the league. So when, uh, when you look at NISA, NISA is um, set up in a way where an independent club is able to keep their autonomy but work with like-minded clubs to form a coalition and that coalition then operates a league that's the general philosophy of nisa so it's it, it there is a there is a central office there is day-to-day operations however they answer to the clubs uh, in the case of the usl they do not they answer to um third-party ownership the whole league is owned by a third party not by a single club or any of the clubs uh, in the case of major league soccer you're you're there, there are no clubs at all. There are ownership shares of a league, and then you get to operate a team. So you are intero- interwoven with uh, the rest of the, the teams and the ownership groups in the MLS. In the case of Nisa, that, that's not the case. If you own your club, if you are Ricardo Silva and you own Miami FC, you come into Nisa, you have full control of your club. You have full control of your intellectual property. You have full control of your day-to-day operations. Um, There are league standards um, that are there, uh, and some of those league standards come from the Federation. Some come from NISA. But other than that, it's like, hey, go play ball. You figure it out. Like, this is your club to run, and there are going to be other clubs that are are trying to be just as advanced you know, advantageous as you are and, and, and trying to build and grow and, um, and, and be aggressive in that way as well. And in the case of that type of system, what often happens is in an effort to get off the ground, you sometimes get into issues where certain organizations are not on the level of other organizations. And, it's one of the toughest jobs of management uh, in those scenarios. When you're getting off the ground, it's trying to make sure you have, you know, if, if, I, if I've got eight, if I've got 10, if I've got 20 teams, I want to make sure that those 20 teams, they don't all have to be on the same level, right? It's not about parity. But what you're looking for is that they're all at a minimum baseline of execution, on their operations. So um, think of it this way. If you are, if you are a club and your philosophy is we're going to, we're going to go and develop young players. We're not going to try to spend a lot of money and bring people from the outside. We're going to try to find, you know, undiscovered talent and showcase them, be willing to sell them on if necessary, 
that's how we're going to build. That's a model, okay? And that model in the beginning may mean, especially in, in into a new league, it may mean that you don't have the ability to be as competitive on the field as you would like and as the league would like. Like you might struggle a little bit in your, your first season as your players are getting used to everything, you're getting used to everything, trying to figure out the rhythm uh, and flow of everything. That's that's one scenario. And you may have another club that, that wants to go in with more seasoned professionals and they're they're you know, they're looking at let's get success now. We'll we'll work into some other things gradually as we go, but we wanna we wanna start off with some more experienced players. We're willing to pay for that and 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 be a solid outfit from the beginning. We want to compete for the league from day one, so on and so forth. That's fine. Both of those models can be viable and successful in year one, year two, year five, year 10. You, you can have a business model in place that supports both of them. And it's not rocket science to do that. Like you can easily work that through. What we're seeing with NISA right now is a little bit different story. It's not an it's not a philosophy issue. It's not an issue of Miami wants to come in and really make a name for themselves and you know the Fury are just um you know trying to work on development and, and they're gonna get around to things. It's not an on the field like philosophy issue. This is where Nisa's toughest job is 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 the vetting. In trying to get things together to be compliant for U.S. soccer, NISA, um, you know, has to work under certain rules, limitations that are required of the U.S. Soccer Professional League standards. So, you know, you've got to get together, you know, eight teams, 10 teams, 12 teams to, to get in compliance with these rules. And sometimes in that effort, you, you, you find a team that wants to be a part of it and, and everything on paper at first glance may look like it's going to work out and be okay. And then you get into it and you realize, hey, things have changed. You know, it's a new league. You may have an owner that's new into the soccer business. Um and you put those two things together and it doesn't always make for, you know, a solid uh, foundation. So there's going to be some hiccups. There's going to be some some burps along the way that Nice is going to have. Uh, I don't think this is going to be the last club that has some issues. Um, and the key part here and the key point for Nisa, the current clubs within NISA, as well as the clubs that are looking at NISA. Right now, this is the only bastion of hope for independent club soccer in the U.S. playing at a professionally sanctioned level under the U.S. Soccer Federation. It's the only league. USL can't offer this. MLS can't offer this. So that's one one thing that we all have to keep in mind. But the second piece of this for the current clubs and the aspiring clubs, what you, what has to happen next is got there's got to be improvement at the front office of the league. Um, because I think one of the issues right now 
looking at this is a league issue. And by a league issue, I mean like league operations. If you look at where NISA is in the public space, they're barely a whimper. I mean, just barely any noise at all on social media. Half the time, you don't even know there's a match that's going to be played, when it's going to be played, etc. Um, all of those are signs of not having your I's dotted, your T's crossed in the front office of the league. So going forward, I think one of the things that's got to happen for NISA and for the clubs that are in NISA and the clubs that are aspiring or wanting to join NISA is an improvement in the front office of the league and league operations has to be the top priority. Get the leadership right. How many times in U.S. soccer have we seen this? Over and over again, this is played out um, with the federation, with with the men's national team, uh, with with the board of directors all over, and, and Nisa's having the same issue. It's a leadership crisis, and uh, and and that is where where things need to get, to get turned and looked at. So, um, I hope you know. I hope this this isn't a doomsday tale for the whole league. I really hope that uh, the Fury can figure this thing out over the next few months. Track record says it's not looking good for them, but uh, who knows? We'll see. And then uh, in regards to the league, I, I'm really hoping that uh, things start to come together and uh, improve. We need that in this country. We need more options. Uh, the current pathway, I, I don't think, is, is good enough. And uh, I think there's some, some opportunity here. Uh, and we need to take it. So our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off your order. Again, that is DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. If you've not checked them out yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, They have really cool products that can help you as a player, as a coach, as an administrator, and they do personalization. So check it out at ducktickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this with Travis Clark.
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday, September the 19th. We are excited to be joined this morning by Travis Clark of Top Drawer Soccer. Travis, how are you this morning? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I am doing well also. Um, I uh, earlier in the week battled a, a migraine that I, I have not, I don't really get headaches very often, but. Uh, that one uh, put me down, uh, and uh, it was uh, it was it was a bit rough. And uh, but we're I'm getting back to normal, uh, feeling more like myself. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if my wife's excited about that or not, but uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so look, Travis, uh, give us a little bit of background on uh, on your story. How did you you know fall in love with the game, get connected with the game, um, you know, growing up? So I, I played growing up. I actually went to, what was it, the 94 World Cup. I went to a game in uh, the East Meadowlands, New Jersey with my family because for whatever reason, my dad was a bit of a soccer fan, but always was never very good, but always played from, you know, five years up until now whenever I can and not get hurt. So, um, you know, at one point during grad school, I decided to try to make a career of it and uh Without going into too much detail, I've worked for various publications, covered MLS, uh, but now, you know, I help run TopForSoccer.com where we cover kind of not elite non-professional soccer is a good way to put it here. So uh, the international uh, element to it for me has always been the big draw that, you know, it's the world's game. You can see leagues around the world. You can see people playing around the world. So I think that for me is a fascinating part. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the shorter end of the story, but... I don't want to bog too bog you down with too many of the details, I guess. So, uh, before we get into some of the, you know, issues in, in the U S and, and around the world, um, tell us a little bit about top drawer soccer. What, what is, you know, the, the aim of, of the platform? What do you guys like to cover, try to cover, and, you know, what is the goal, um, for, for top drawer soccer as an entity? So we are part of a media company called Advanced Sports Media, which covers, I didn't start the company. I didn't start the website. That was someone named Ralph Ziegler who started it back, I want to say, you know, 2005, 2006. And it's always been a, a platform for, you know, players to, I guess, get noticed by colleges, get, you know, people follow college soccer, want to get more news about the college game in the fall. We cover uh, the U.S. youth national teams, men's and women's. We have, uh, I have a colleague on the West Coast, J.R. Eskelson, who's at a number of camps out there. So, you know, we're a small staff and we're pretty limited. I would love to do bigger and better things, but I understand that, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it, we're also a business and we have to bring in some revenue. So it, it, we are limited in the scope, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's a platform for players to get an exposure as best as we can with the resources that we have, if that makes sense. So. You know, I, I guess the overall aim is to to tell stories to some extent, but it's also a resource for you know families of players that want to go to college that are in college, that sort of a thing. So you know, we try to do as much as we can, and part of, part of doing that makes it difficult, I guess, for us to be as broadly accessed. At the same time, um, we serve an audience that I think is relatively robust, and again, we could always do a little bit more and we'll always be a little bit better. So. Let's dive into uh, some of the the things that you cover, 
Um, and uh, let's first get into some of the, the national team uh, aspects. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, chatter online, social media about our youth national teams feeding into our men's national teams, uh, the pipeline of players um, trying to trying to figure out uh, on the men's side in particular, how do we how do we try to, to start getting some of the next generation into the program? We've started to see a little bit of it with uh, Pulisic and McKinney and Adams. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you still got Josie Altador hanging around, Jazzy's artist hanging around, Michael Bradley hanging around. And, um, you know, after failing to qualify for 2018, uh, these guys are not getting any younger. Um, and we've yet to qualify for the last two Olympics. Um, and so there's been a lot of conversation, I know, uh, as well about looking at the Olympic uh, program as as a as mm-hmm. a as an idea of kind of revitalizing this men's national team program, what do you see when you're when you're covering the youth national teams and the kind of this next generation of players? Do you see players that are on the horizon or that should be maybe they're over the horizon, but they're not getting a a, a good shot yet um, with the men's mm-hmm. national team in terms of improving our player pool on the men's side? Yeah, you know, it's it's really difficult to say with just the the various mechanisms you have going on, whatever's happening behind the scenes, what Greg Berhalter and Ernie Stewart are seeing. We, you know, I'm a guy that always likes to look at the upside of players as opposed to maybe what have you done for me lately or what can you do right away. And when you look at the under-20 World Cup squad, I understand the need to have players playing for first teams and breaking through, but... You know, we we saw this past week, uh, I guess, a quartet of Americans, although I'm not going to count three of them, play against each other in the Dutch second division at Young Ajax and Young PSV. And for me, I'm like, well, if you see a Richie Ledesma playing at a good level for Young PSV, let's bring him into a a full men's national team camp. I mean, uh, you know, just someone like that. If you can, and then see if he can hang, see what he would do in, in the camp, and you know, let's go from there because. I think he has a combination of ability and upside to, you know, the sooner he gets his feet wet, the sooner he sees what that level is like. It can't be, look, you know, it's hard to compare leagues side by side, but, you know, major league soccer is not so far in advance of, let's say the Dutch second division. And I'm sure people will disagree with me. And again, this is more of a me going out of limb than saying, this is definitely how this is because how do you quantify that specifically? But you know, someone like Richie Ledesma, if he, if he excels there, let's let's have a look. At least get him into a camp. I'm not saying you need to throw him onto a, some onto the field, but someone like that, Alex Mendez. You know, I know his skill set is a little bit different than Richie's, but if he's playing for Young Ajax, I'm not opposed to someone like that moving through. Chris Gloucester just gets just starting a Young PSV. There's not that much of a difference for me, and there's much more incentive to bring in a Gloucester than Daniel Lovitz, who's playing at MLS. No, no disrespect intended to Daniel Lovitz. He's just the first left back I thought of. You know, surging your desk as a left back, that's great. You know, maybe it's less of an incentive to put Gloucester in. So, you know, you look at the the future, the talent that's coming through, you still need them to establish them to an extent. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not sure how you quantify that, right? I would rather see Josh Sargent in the starting lineup 
Uh, you know, if Josie Altidore is not there, I, I, get, I get that people aren't the biggest Altidore fan, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he's the guy that still stands out to me as a premier striker. Now, you know, Mason Toy, if you're looking at MLS, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Abobase are, you know, kind of there, thereabouts, but, you know, they're also playing on teams that are throwing a lot of resources towards attackers from, you know, abroad. So they're not going to, those teams are going to probably give Mason Toy, Jeremy Abobase a lot less of a look as in the starting number nine than, you know, in some other scenarios like Giazzi's art as a Columbus where they have a ton of money invested in him. So I know I'm kind of waffling and all over the place with that answer, but I, I do think there's promise and I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out in my own opinion where, at what point do these players need to be with their teams in order to get a look with the full team? So, uh, you know, there's, there's no necessarily easy answer to that, but I'm all about being aggressive and giving upside the call as opposed to players that we kind of know. And I know that's kind of Berhalter's thing is he seems to me like a coach, like all coaches, he has his guys and he's probably going to, for better or for worse, lean on those guys for at least the near term. And I'm hoping that he's not stubborn and obstinate and, takes it as far as kind of limiting chances for other players because of, you know, and maybe if the U23s, if some of these guys can get in there first and help the U.S. get to the Olympics, then that would be a substantial achievement considering we haven't been there in a while. So, uh, you know, I think there are good players on the way, but it's just a matter of balancing. And, you know, then the one downside to it is if you call these guys as a full team and they kind of get carried away and then don't take care of business at the club level, that's a whole other issue you're opening up. So, it's not. A, I, I acknowledge that it's not an easy way, easy thing to handle. But at the same time, I'm all about being aggressive and chasing the upside of some of these players. So, uh, one of the players you mentioned, Josh Sargent, in the spring, uh, there was a lot of hullabaloo, a lot of uh, angst over the way the U.S. Uh, program handled uh, his uh, spring going into the summer. Uh, was left off of. The U twenty World Cup squad, um, and you know, was supposed to look like he was going to be brought in to play uh, for the Gold Cup uh, squad uh, with the senior mm-hmm. men's national team, and then is cut from uh, the men's national team. What what happened there uh, with Josh Sargent? I'm not one hundred percent sure enough to speak on record, but you have to imagine it's some kind of a scenario where. Bert Halter knows what he has in Giassi Zardes and he trusts that for, for, you know, it's his opinion. He's a player he's comfortable with and whatever Sergeant needed to do when he was in camp with the, I think he was in like a U23 joint camp and then with a full team, you know, Sergeant, I guess did not do enough. Maybe there was an issue with fitness. Maybe he just didn't have the, he wasn't at the level that he needed to be in Berhalter's eyes again to make it on the camp into the full cup roster. Now, again, if, you know, if I'm the coach and, and Sergeant is showing me flashes, maybe he's having some ups and downs. I'm probably, I'm going to go out of my way to try to work him to the mix, seeing that this guy is, uh, you know, he's the future, hopefully. Right. So let's get him into these CONCACAF games. Let's, you know, he played against Jamaica. He was okay. I was at that game at Audi Field. Apparently they lost one zero. And, uh, you know, I don't think he hurt himself necessarily, but nobody really covered themselves with the glory in that game. So, you know, I didn't get to see the training sessions and didn't see how Sargent played or, you know, maybe he was not fit. Maybe he was just really sloppy. You know, you can speculate without, I'm sure nobody, I don't think anybody's going to go on record necessarily, but 
uh, you know, it had to be some kind of mixture of that. And he didn't hit whatever threshold he needed to, to earn Berhalter's trust and make it into the gold cup team. Now, you know, maybe it's for the better in the, in the long term, but you know, it certainly was frustrating for the gold cup. And, you know, we, I don't think that Josh Jordan would have struggled against CONCACAF opponents and you could have used him in and alternated him with Josie Altador and we would have been fine. And even if he hadn't hit the threshold that Berhalter needed, I think he could have carried himself well, but again, it's all speculation. Well, we like to speculate. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh so w- when, uh, when we're looking at, uh, the, the youth national team programs, um, one of the, the questions that I see asked quite often uh, online uh, and, and in social media has to do with bringing in um, diversity and, and then mm. getting that diversity up into the, the men's national team's access, opportunity, etc. In your coverage of the, U- of the youth national teams in recent years, have you seen an improvement in the player pool and then also in, in the coaching pool? Have you seen any improvements there in terms of diversity? I think if you, if you pull up, if you're strictly speaking of, you know, a player's background, uh, you know, their ethnicity, then I think there's been a substantial improvement from when I started this to now. You know, you, you look at the the U.S. starting lineups in the under-17, I think, you know, you know with, for, for lack of a better way to say it, white kids are now in the minority in most starting lineups, which is, I think, a positive thing. Now, uh, does that mean that they're going to go out there and play well because we have, you know, kids of a certain background? I don't, they still need to be well-coached. And I think, in the coaching department, uh, there, there could still be a lot of ground to make up. Now, when you bring up coaching, you bring up coaches in the youth setup, there are a lot of coaching vacancies. And I know you're asking me the question, but I still have figured, haven't figured out why exactly U.S. soccer is dragging its feet. You know, Tab Ramos has done a great job with the under-20s. Everything I've read and heard is that he's not as much of a factor in terms of decision-making. So, you know, Carlos Cordero and Arnie Stewart and... Who, who the heck knows what's going on at Soccer House in some regards to that capacity? And you know, hopefully we see a plan and something implemented sooner rather than later. You know, you, just look at the under-17s. We had John Hackworth leave at the end of 2018, sort of at the, I guess, sort of middle end of a cycle. And it took the Federation until March, and qualifying started in April. So, you know, there's been this implement, tr- attempted implementation of requiring these youth coaches to uproot their lives and move to Chicago to work at Soccer House, which I get in theory, but in practice, is that really going to attract the best coaches that maybe are, have established jobs at clubs that are doing good jobs and have families and don't want to uproot themselves for a short-term contract? Like, it just seems to me a little bit short-sighted in some regards. So. Uh, I think there's always room for improvement there, no matter what you're talking about, no matter what element of coaching you're talking about. And, you know, I get it. Coaching's hard. And the, in this country, it hasn't been made easy to get some of these badges and you know, progress through and it's expensive. But uh, I mean, that, that's a, that, that's even like chucking diversity out the window too. You know, are the best coaches getting the education and support they need at, from whatever organization to really identify and bring out the best players this country has to offer. I'm, I'm still skeptical and 
I'll be curious to see how that kind of evolves and develops, if at all. In regards to, um, you know, the setup here in the U.S., uh, we are set up, obviously, very different than the rest of the world for a lot of reasons. Um, we have a, we have a closed system of disconnected leagues, even, uh, an entity like the USL that owns three leagues still disconnect their leagues. Um, mm-hmm. and then you have the college system that is very much a large part of day-to-day life for the soccer ecosystem here in the U.S., uh, as a matter of fact, even your Major League Soccer academies, development academies, are often bragging about how many kids they're sending to college more than they ever talk about how many kids they get into their first team. Um, when we look at the college landscape, where do you see the college game now and where do you see it in five to ten years in terms of maybe some of these, these proposed changes um, and, and will those, those help like a longer season, uh, et cetera, mm-hmm. on the college level? Yeah. First of all, I, just to give your listeners background, if they're unaware, there's a sort of a movement within major D1 men's coaches to try to extend the season from, you know, what it is now compact August, to December, if I'm being generous, which is, you know, short, obviously they play exhibition games in the spring, but they're, they're also players are limited with in how much they're allowed to train with coaches and even to touch the ball. So honestly, if that, those changes were ever implemented and I'm, again, I'm not to be pessimistic to any college coaches that are listening. If they are, there is a, I feel like it's a small chance that NCAA would sort of make that there's just too many hoops to jump through too many things that, need to be taken care of too many different parties involved you know just as an example the university of virginia you know, i'm in virginia they the lacrosse team uses the field in the spring so if you extend the men's college season do they have the capacity to share that venue in the spring you know that's talking about relining the fields and yes that sounds simple but i'm sure it costs a decent amount of money and you know, maybe you have double lines, but that's just a, one example that jumps to mind. So, and, and whether it changes the, the landscape, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I still think, you know, first of all, I, I, do, I would push back a little bit. MLS teams don't necessarily brag as much as they used to about signing National Signing Day, but, you know, I think that, you know, not every kid is going to be a professional soccer player, and that's fair. And if you're going to go to go play college soccer, that's a decision every player can make. And, Frankly, it's what a lot of players are shooting for, you know, men's or women. Obviously, with women's, it's nearly 100%. But men's, it's probably a high number as well if you pull players kind of going on along that path. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world, but I, I understand the point that, you know, academies in the professional world are supposed to develop pristine players, and, you know, there's still, there's still ways to go. Strides have been made, though. Teams are becoming, for better or worse, more aggressive about signing players at 15 and 16 than, uh, you know, sending them off to college for two to three years and then signing them as homegrown players. And, you know, you mentioned the USL, and that's made strides. And, you know, I don't, I think the college game is more, honestly, it's sort of its own independent thing when you're speaking from a perspective of development, when you're speaking of U.S. soccer, because the NCAA operates it. So it's only going to be changed if, 
you know, the NCAA takes a ding and maybe they lose substantial revenue for some TV deals fall through and then they're forced to cut program. I could, that's the only thing I would see impacting the college game because, you know, what's happening now is these, these elite American soccer players or, you know, elite from our perspective are not going to play college soccer. So for most big programs, a lot of them are turning to players from abroad. So you have a lot of Europeans coming, some South Americans, and, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Even Canadians, too, as well. I think you can chuck them into the thing. But it's really fascinating to me because, you know, you have these state institutions, and the job of these coaches, for the most part, is to make sure their kids graduate and to win games. So, it's, you know, I, that's, that's painting with a broad brush, too. There are coaches that absolutely emphasize development, improving players, and that sort of thing. That, that definitely happens. But uh, internationals are becoming a, a bigger part of the, the men's game. You know, Maryland won the national title last fall, and they started a French attacking midfielder and a couple other players from abroad. They did have a, a strong domestic contingent. Um, but the, the really unique thing about it, too, is that these players are coming from Scandinavia, other parts of Europe, and a lot of the times they'll have played a year or two beyond turning 18. So they're 20, 21 years old as freshmen and they have that physical leg up on people as well. So it's really, uh, it's really difficult to say, you know, the future of college soccer is bright, at least from a men's perspective, because it's sort of tied to that NCAA thing, which is why we haven't seen any change of sub rules or the countdown clock or overtimes, which are all things that really need to be reformed before even the full season is addressed, in my opinion. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on uh, the last point in terms of the the influx of international players uh, at the college level? What kind of impact does that have on the domestic players who you know, are aspiring to play at college? Is that giving them, you know, more competition? Is it, is it giving them more opportunities to get better? Is it limiting their opportunities? Is it limiting spots on a roster? Uh, what kind of impact has that had as more internationals are getting involved uh, in the college game? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a difficult one to really quantify because every kind of, everything, what you, everything you said is, probably true depending on the team, depending on the situation. Uh, and again, I'm not privy to what kind of scholarship opportunities are being handed out to the, the, the foreign recruits. You know, are they looking at a player's video or do they have an agency they're trusting and saying, okay, 20 year old from Sweden who plays at a, a club are, are I'm not going to go see you play As a, lot, a lot of times they do see these players play, but in person, but sometimes they don't. Like, I don't know if like full rides are being handed out based off of video scouting or whatever. Um, you know, I think one thing that people often overlook when you talk about each of the pay to play like element of it is that most men's collegiate soccer players don't get full rides to schools. Some do, but there's only 9.9 scholarships per men's soccer team in the division in division one athletics. So, you know, there's still an element of having to pay your way through school, even if you're a pretty good player. So, you know, there's that piece to it that's overlooked. I do think that, you know, the bringing these players from abroad definitely broadens players' horizons. Having them in training sessions will improve the, the domestic player as well. But I'm sure there's instances where if you're, there's a spot on the team, 
it's going to go to this player that I brought in on a, from abroad. Maybe I'm getting him a little, even and to a lesser extent, it's similar to the MLS. I'm spending money on this guy. So I'm going to like give him more chances to be on the field. But again, the sub rule makes that a little bit different as well that, you know, you can, you know, sub once and the you can, player can come off in the first half once and then second half, three times and come in and out and then coaches can make as many subs as they want to. So, you know, that mitigates it certainly, but it, it's been notable. And I think that every year is different because, you know, the, for another example, close to me is Maryland. Maryland had three players committed from MLS Academy is Justin Hawk, Edwin Cirillo, and, and the third name escapes me, but you know, all three players ended up signing MLS homegrown deals before making it to school. So, you know, that live, Oh, George Campbell, Atlanta United, that, that the name came to me. So as an example, you know, Maryland had to scramble and try to fill some gaps in with late recruits. And some of those happened to be players from abroad. So uh, it, it's, it, it's certainly yeah, and that from that perspective too, the example is it's probably late to fill your 2019 class. Cause a lot of domestic players are either made their decision on a college or, you know, to have decided to go pro. So uh, it, it's really hard to like pinpoint and say these things are one way or another. I think everything you kind of asked me in that question applies to the situation. You brought up these, this scholarship rule. I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine uh, who, whose daughter is uh, uh, in college playing uh, soccer um, several years ago uh, when she was, I think in high school um, and, and just talking about scholarships uh, because, you know, when you are a family in America um, mm-hmm. and you're, you know, wanting to provide your, your kid with a, you know, uh, the best environment or opportunity that, that you, that, you know, that you can, the pitch has been for pay to play soccer for a very long time is, you know, basically mm-hmm. you pay us now pay us a lot of money now so that we pay coaches to coach your kids. And then, um, the idea is, is there's this, this, this nugget, this carrot hanging out in front of you that you will get a college scholarship down the road. And so basically like, you know, you, you pay up front, but you're going to, you're going to, you're going to save a whole lot more money down the road because we're going to help your kid get into college. The reality of, the um, the numbers of kids uh, that are in pay to play soccer uh, in this country that are paying thousands of dollars per year, and then the the prospect of them ever even getting a scholarship, much less a full scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. To me, the math doesn't add up, and I and I explained that to to him uh, a few years ago because I was like, "Do you do you realize that all the money you're paying right now, like if you just put it in a savings account or an investment fund, you'd have more money at college than what this college scholarship might even give you." Um, what are your thoughts on that on that aspect? Do you see that uh, math as well in terms of 
the limited number of spots, the limited number of scholarships due to the to Title IX and the NCAA, um, and and the math with the with the pay to play kind of nugget. Uh, have mm-hmm. you have you seen that kind of change over the over the years in terms of conversations with parents, or or is that still kind of prevalent? You know, this whole come come pay now and and we'll help your kid get a college scholarship. Yeah, I, I don't have too many examples, and I don't know enough parents that have gone in depth to me on the, the finances of it. But I would say that, um, you know, first on the women's side, important to note that they do get more scholarships per team. It's fourteen, but again, as you noted, everything you say is definitely true. And I think that it's a it's an it's an instance where it's really hard to uh, make the decision across the board and say this is one way. But I would say. For the most part, it would be better off to save money, just watch what you're spending on that, and then at the end of it, depending on when you start having your kid come through these leagues, like maybe if you have a good coach in a good local league and you don't have to hit the travel circuit until a little bit later, then you're saving that money in the short term. If you really want to do it, you hit it later, and then you end up coming up on top. You know, I've had parents tell me, like, you know, I've got a, we got a full ride here to an ACC school and another parents that we never would have been able to afford this ACC private school without this soccer. And, um, even, you know, cause the, the, the amount of money that you have to show up for these, some of these schools is still so significant that a 90% scholarship is still going to be pretty strong. So, um, but on the, on the whole, you, as you said, the math is, is good. It doesn't, add up in some respects and it's going to be a very challenging for some players to get that what is it carrot at the end or however however you use the analogy that i now can't remember it's a it's a path that's harder to you know make your way through and then it's like well we definitely save money here on the end after spending all this money here so um again but every player is going to be different and that, that's what makes it hard to really kind of tackle the question head on but again, as you say, the numbers, if you look at them, think about it, think about the scholarships available, even if there are vast amounts, particularly on the women's side, or seemingly vast amounts, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, then, uh, you know, if, if any parents are listening, you got to think long and hard about what exactly it is, what's the best way to approach it that can make the most of my money, if that's kind of the end goal. And for, you know, mo- for most players, as I said, most parents, that's the end goal, that's the the um, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That's terrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. Hey, look, we can go all cheesy if we need to. Um, I was in Denmark this summer and was having a conversation uh, with a, a boarding school while I was there um, about, you know, the setup in Denmark. And they were talking about how their um, kind of freshman, sophomore uh, years uh, are the only uh, times in, uh, in a family's life where they will sometimes, they don't, they don't, they're not required to, but some families will actually choose to, to pay for school. Uh, and they'll do some boarding mm-hmm. school, uh, which is kind of like, uh, you know, they, they, this one I was in particular, I was talking to, uh, focuses on athletics. So kids will, will go to this boarding school, uh, in the, in Copenhagen and, um, and, you know, we'll do, you know, whether it's soccer or, or an, another sport, um, in the mm-hmm. mornings, they'll do their classes and then they'll often at night go and train with their own 
clubs that they play with. Um, and they'll do that for their freshman, sophomore year. And then they'll typically go back uh, to school. And then their their college university uh, doesn't cost them anything uh regardless of whether they go to a boarding school or not in Denmark. If you're, if you're a Danish, uh, if you, if you live in Denmark, you can, uh, you can attend college for free, uh, not to wade too deep into the, uh, political landscape. We are staring down, uh, <laughs> T minus 14 months to, uh, to the presidential election of 2020. Uh, and so we are not going to turn into CNN MSNBC or Fox news here, uh, with this question, but, I, as you were talking, I, I have not ever thought about this, and and we were talking about college soccer, and I and and I just it kind of hit me, and I was like, I, I wonder what this would do. And so here's my question, without trying to to uh, you know wade into the political landscape, I this this has nothing to do with an ideological standpoint, you know, for anyone watching or listening of, of for or against free college. Okay. So let's set that aside. We're not even getting into the politics. Um, if there was a change, okay. So this is just going to be hypothetical. If there was a change to be like a Denmark where our mm-hmm. public universities um, became free, and there are colleges that are starting to, in states that are starting to, to, to entertain this or um, start to offer this, um, yeah. right? So that, that the, your college education is now going to, to not cost you near what it's costing you now. In some cases, it may not cost you uh, much at all. What impact would that have on college soccer and maybe college athletics at large when you're not having to worry about mm-hmm. 9.9 you know scholarships or 14 scholarships on the women's side if if all of your players are now able to attend school um yeah. for free um what kind of impact would that make on on college sports and in particular college soccer yeah, I mean, that's that's a really interesting question. You'd have to think that, in, in my opinion, it's always been, if you're an MLS academy, if you're an MLS team, and again, this is me spending other people's money, if you're pro academy here, what I would do is I would just say, all right, and you see some of these teams do this. The Sounders are a good example where, you know, they've stumped up, they've signed a bunch of kids, and they're going to offer these kids the chance to go to, uh, yes, it's, you know, it's either like a, I think it's an affiliation with the University of Washington or MLS has a thing with Southern New Hampshire University, but that's not going to be the most glamorous degree. Um, I do think there will be some impact, but again, I think on the flip side of that, you would also have players that would see the opportunity to go to a school like a Stanford, University of Virginia, you know, some of the Ivy Leagues, and that would certainly still be the most appealing option because you could even go up to the, you know, if we're talking specifically from an MLS sort of pathway, you know, the, the high salaries there for Americans, you know, that's a part, another part of the discussion where you have owners injecting all this money with the, the, the silly acronyms that they use to throw around and to describe allocation money. And so it doesn't make any sense to me, but 
know, they're spending going out and spending money on players from abroad as opposed to you know giving their players more money from the domestic guys that have proven themselves in the league. Maybe they're not that glamorous. Maybe they're not going to be as good as this hypothetical player they're scouting. But you know the the salary limits within that context as well. I think are relatively noticeable and would factor into a player's decision as well. Because you know you go to Stanford. I know that these are more extreme examples, but you get degrees from somewhere, and you get your earning potential and potential in the long run could still outweigh anything you make as a professional soccer player especially if you're thinking about it from an MLS perspective. Now, I know that there's chances to make bigger money elsewhere, some of the points, but it would be really interesting to see how it would play out in your hypothetical situation. And I'm sure there would be an effect and an impact, but um, I think there's always been a little bit of, there has already been a little bit of a talent drain from at least domestic players deciding to go, go pro earlier, deciding to go to Europe or stay with their respective MLS team as opposed to going the college round now. But I think it might be even stronger at that point. Yeah. I, I, as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, on the women's side, um, you know, you give Anson Dorrance uh, no limitations. Uh, now all of my kids get free college. Um, you know, the dude's going to rack up like, you know, 25 uh, best players in America coming to North Carolina. Um you know, where he's not limited, uh, with, with the scholarship situation. So, um, you know, I have no idea what, it was just a fascinating, as, as you were talking, uh, to me, I was just kind of like, Oh, I've never, never even really considered, um, uh, this from a college perspective and, and, um, and, and would it have an impact at all, uh, on pay to play soccer, uh, being that that's been kind of one of the big marketing pieces from youth clubs around the country over the last few decades about, you know, pay us now and we can get you a college scholarship. I guess it, it would just be a yeah. little bit of a shift to pay us now and, and, and we'll give you the best visibility to, uh, to get accepted to that college program. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Yeah, I think on the women's side. Sorry, I'm gonna. I know you, I didn't jump in on the women's side. I'm. I'm. I know I'm cutting you off, and I should have. Oh, you're good. I do think that that um that would depend. I think on how robust the women's league here is, because again, I think the salary ceiling is still quite limited to the even smaller perspective to the the full women's national team and how they're compensated, which is far more than you know your typical NWSLer. So uh, that. That would, uh, I think there would be a little bit of a shift where you maybe see some of the elite players skip school along a little bit higher rate, but I don't think it would be a situation where, uh, you know, and then that's a completely different kettle of fish too, because uh, there you don't have the professional academies, at least here at MLS, you have some, the, the majority of MLS academies don't charge you to play, but they're still, you know, that, that pathway is not as, and from a club perspective, not, um, something that's really getting built up or built out or offered really in terms of a free academy in the women's uh, girl side as you've grown up. So, um, but that, that would be really even a bigger kind of twist to the, I don't know why I didn't think of it in my first answer, but it would be a bigger twist for sure. Yeah, totally. Well, look, Travis, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, how can people follow your work, get connected to you uh, online uh, and, and reach out uh, to learn more about what you do and, and follow your coverage? Yeah, check out topforsoccer.com, click around. I know our, our web design needs, needs a facelift, obviously, um, but 
You can also follow me or ask any questions at Travis M. Clark on Twitter, where I'm happy to engage and answer other questions. Well, Travis, I appreciate you coming on the show. Look forward to having you back on again soon. And um, maybe I'll uh, come up with another uh, hypothetical scenario. Um, and, and hopefully <laughs> ho- hopefully, it, it's it's not too uh, incendiary uh, uh, with, with us being in the middle of a presidential election cycle. Uh, I, I think America's going to be, uh, hair's going to be on fire here for the next uh, 14 months or so. But uh, hopefully we'll get through it all. And... Um, you know, and we'll see see where we are at coming out the other side. But uh, really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and uh, and taking a stab at some of these questions. Um, you know, I, no problem. There, there's there's so many aspects of American soccer, um, and uh, it, it's it's sometimes really ugly and sometimes fascinating. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. I appreciate you uh, going down that hypothetical road with us. So uh, appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Happy to come on, Daniel. Thanks. That is Travis Clark of Top Drawer Soccer. Thanks uh, to him for coming on the show. Really do appreciate it. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. Learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday, September the 19th. Thanks to Travis Clark for joining us. As always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. Connect with us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at Daniel Workman. Look forward to... uh, reaching out and uh, having some chats. Um, We're looking at some stuff for tomorrow's show, so stay tuned on social media. Um, Had a really good uh, back and forth last week uh, and integrating some uh, tweets and and so forth, and and we're looking at doing that again tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Otherwise, have a great day. We'll see everyone again on Friday.